Take your Bibles this evening and turn to the book of John, John chapter 2 this evening. John chapter 2, calling it Lessons from a Wedding. Weddings are always interesting to me, and I look back over the years of ministry and uh, remember several different things that have happened at weddings. I remember, uh, I usually, when I do a wedding at rehearsal, uh, you know, most of the time, you're 99% of the time, you're I, I'm, I am always marrying Christians, but uh, I always sit down at wedding, wedding rehearsals and uh, I have about a 15 or 20 minute little chat with those in the wedding because sometimes even in Christian weddings you have people who aren't Christians who are involved and I share with them uh, that this is an important time, this needs to honor God, uh, we don't want to end up on America's funniest videos with this wedding and... Uh, so I went through this whole spiel, and I always tell people, if you would happen to show up at this wedding and you're drunk, you'll not participate in the wedding. I tell them that right off the bat. And uh, this one particular time, I, I had a groom who showed up, and I didn't find out, find, uh, find out later that he had been drinking some. And uh, we were about halfway through the wedding, and I noticed that he was turning gray. And uh, so we're exchanging vows, and uh, I said to him, I said, okay. And he starts to talk, and he says to me, I'm going to throw up. And, and he said again, I'm going to throw up. And so it's a similar stage situation to this in the church where I pastored. And so I, I said to the people in attendance, I said, uh, please just sit tight. And we headed out that door, and as I went by, I said to the organist, play something, we'll be right back. We got through that door, and he unloaded all his stomach down our steps and all over. And uh, it was funny because the lady who played the organ played, I come to the garden alone, is what she chose to play as the bride stood there by herself waiting for me to clean him up. And it took about 10 minutes to clean him up, and all I could think of when I said, it's time to kiss the bride, I thought, oh, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> so I, I, I'll, I'll certainly never, never forget that wedding. I'll never forget the wedding that I did for the Delators, Jim and Zyda. Jim, Zyda was a, uh, just a sharp lady, an emergency room doctor, and very dignified couple. And I, I always share in the wedding, again, about the importance of uh, husbands discipling your wife. And I said in that wedding, and Jim, I want to tell you, you need to discipline your wife on a daily basis. I didn't even know I said it. Everybody was laughing, and I think it was Virginia said, do you know why everybody laughed tonight? And I said, no, why? What did I say? And she said, you said that everybody should discipline their wife daily. So I'll never forget that one. That was another one of those, you know, little bloopers that you have in, in weddings. So weddings are always interesting because you sort of never know. At that same wedding, um, Zaito was from a background that's very laid back and Hispanic background. And if you know anything, a lot of times Hispanics don't do things. They're not in any rush. And uh, so Mrs. Zabala is laughing there. And so in this particular wedding, it was already an hour and 15 minutes late. And uh, the organist, who I was real good for, friends with, she had played just about everything that she knew while she was waiting. And so finally, we got everybody lined up, and uh, 
Zyda looked down and she said, oh no, we forgot the flower girl's flowers. And she said, I'll run home. It'll take 10 or 15 minutes. And I said, Zyda, these people have been sitting here an hour and 15 minutes. And she said, oh, what's another half hour? And I said, no. So I ran downstairs to the church kitchen. I found a little basket. I ran upstairs. I went to every one of the, the bridesmaids. I took flowers out. I put them in there and I said, here, you're going to put these in the aisle as you go down. And uh, that's what they did. And it worked. Weddings. Well, Jesus and his disciples come to a wedding here in John chapter 2. Let's read the portion of scripture and then let's look at this this evening. It says here in John chapter 2, And the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they had wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto him, Servants, saith unto them, Servants, whatsoever he saith you unto you to do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then they that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. There are several lessons that I want us to learn here. And I want us to look here back to verse, uh, back right at the beginning of verse 1. It says, in the third day there was a marriage in Cana. Now that third day is talking three days after Jesus had chosen Philip and Nathaniel as his disciples. That's what that third day it's talking about. It's been three days since he chose those two men. At this point of Jesus' ministry, he has Andrew, John, Peter, James, and then uh, three days ago he had picked Philip and Nathaniel. So he has six disciples at this time. So that's what that's referring to there when it says, and the third day there was a marriage in Canaan. This is three days after he had chose those last two men. And so now he is traveling with six men, six disciples thus far. It says, uh, there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, his mother's there. It's interesting that they point this out. I don't believe, and I think as we study through Scripture, and especially as you look at this, because she talked to Jesus about the shortage of wine, I believe she was probably there more than just a guest. I believe that she probably was there as a servant. She was there serving uh, in some capacity at this wedding. And um, so she's more than just a guest. She's probably serving, helping to serve. Now, again, we have to understand the Jewish culture. At a Jewish wedding, it wasn't just a little bit of a ceremony and then a one-day um, type celebration. Usually, Jewish wedding celebrations lasted for anywhere from five to seven days. And uh, 
And we know that uh, sort of from um, Joseph and Mary, we know that first of all, in a Jewish type custom, you are betrothed. That's just like you are engaged, but it's more of a, you actually sign a legal binding contract. At that, from that point on, there can no, cannot be any physical relationships with anybody else. So it's certainly almost like us putting an engagement ring on, though in Jesus' time, there was almost a, like a contract that they signed. And then, after that betrothal, during that betrothal period, what would happen is the man, after he had paid the price, what he would do is he would go to his home and he would begin to prepare a place for his bride. And he would, at that point, build onto his house some type of a dwelling place for him and his wife. And uh, she would not know when he was going to come back. But he would gather together his wedding party, and they would come back to where the bride was. She didn't know the time. She, she was just to get, get ready. It's not like today when you send out invitations and you know the date of your wedding. That wasn't how it was in biblical times. Once you were betrothed, all you knew is that your man was back home preparing a place for you, and he was going to come and get you someday, so you had to be ready. And so what would happen is that man would come, he would get the party, he would get to the the bride's house and they would all together shout or he would shout I'm here and just like that then the marriage feast the marriage ceremony would start and then a, and then a long feast would take place again five to seven days again what a tremendous picture Jesus Christ came he paid the price for us he went to heaven what's the Bible say in John 14 he's doing right now he's preparing a place for us and the Bible says what someday he's coming back with a Shout with the voice of an archangel. And what? His church, his bride is going to be taken up to be with him. So just like we see in the Jewish custom is what we have going here. Now all of that has taken place and now we're at the ceremony part. So, you know, to think of them running out of wine, I'm not sure what day this is in the ceremony actually when this actually happens. We don't know the exact timeline here. But it says... Um, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Well, evidently, as Jesus is coming to Canaan, they knew he was already coming. And so uh, whether it, some believe it was Nathaniel who lived in that area and, and got them the invite, or whether, whether it was his mother, we're not sure about that. But somehow him and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And it's interesting that Jesus took time out of his ministry to come to a wedding. So first lesson from a wedding is this. Jesus is a social being. Jesus is a social being. In fact, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, that he was accused of gluttony and to be a wine-bibber because he sat down and he did what? He ate with the sinners and the publicans. And that was part of Jesus' ministry. Often when you found Jesus... He was where? Yes, sometimes you found him in the temple, but more so you found him out among the sinners and, and, and in social settings and social situations. And so there's nothing wrong with a social setting or a social situation. There's nothing wrong with us attending a wedding. There's nothing wrong with us having people to our house and fellowshipping and having a good time. And you know, the other day we had some couples over and we played some games and stuff. And those things are fun. And you know what? Listen to me. Jesus is a social being. He wasn't somebody who just stood off in the corner. He came and he, and he enjoyed a social setting. 
And I think even as us as Christians, you know, that's important for us to have. In fact, in Acts, in, the, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, when the church first started, it says that they what? Daily, they went house to house teaching the Word of God. And I think as you study that through, not only did they teach the Word of God, but it seems like they spent a lot of times socializing and eating together and fellowshipping together. And so point number one is simply this, a lesson from a wedding is Jesus is a social being and there's nothing wrong with us being social beings. There's nothing wrong with us having fun. There's nothing wrong with us enjoying the life that he set us here to. The next thing I want us to see from this is that the fact that he attended the wedding and the fact that the very first miracle that he does, which we'll look at in here in just a moment, teaches us Point number two this evening is that Jesus is interested in the institution of marriage. Again, it's important. The very first place that Jesus decides to do open ministry here, the very first miracle that he's going to perform as he begins to show forth who he is and to show forth his glory is in a wedding setting. I think it's important because when we look at institutions, the first institution on this earth was not the church. The first institution was marriage. Take your Bibles this evening. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, if you would. And let me just remind you of that. Genesis chapter 2. And let's look at when, when Jesus or when God instituted marriage. It wasn't long after creation that God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And we know when he placed them there, they were perfect. And... Uh, it's interesting as you read through Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, at the end of each day, he says, and it was good. Um, but when you get to man dwelling alone, he says, and it was not good. And let's pick up in verse 18 of chapter 2. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Adam gave names to the cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helpmate for him. I love this portion of scripture because I think it is the foundation of marriage. And here God has placed Adam in the garden and he hasn't given Eve yet. He hasn't brought Eve to him. And uh, he creates all the animals and he begins to pray the animals in front of Adam. And I believe he paraded them two by two. And Adam named them. And as those animals walked by, as I see that, I think of Adam saying, wow, look, there's, uh, I think we'll call them zebras. That's Mr. and Mrs. Zebra. Uh, that's Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Alligator, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, mm, that's a funny looking thing, walking straight up on its little legs. That's a snake. That's Mr. and Mrs. Snake. That's always a scary thought to me that at one time snakes walk straight up. I hate snakes on the ground, but to think to look one in the eye is really scary to me. But there's Mr. and Mrs. Snake, you know, because they were cursed and had to crawl on their belly after the curse. But So he names all these, and, and, and what God is doing here is he's showing Adam something important. What? He's showing them that there's two of everything, but there's only what? One of you. Adam, you're missing something. Two of each animal, but only one of you. And he's trying to create, in a sense, a need in Adam to show him that he needs. And Adam gave name to all the cattle, all the fowl of the air, and every beast of the field. And, and, but for Adam, there was not found a helpmate for him. 
And here God becomes the first anesthesiologist, the first doctor. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. I always like to point out in marriage counseling when I get to that verse, it was the last good night of sleep that man had. I'm just kidding, ladies, just kidding. But it does say that. It doesn't say that in the text. But it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from Adam made he a woman and brought her unto man. And so Adam here, God puts him to sleep, and God performs this surgery of taking one of his ribs and forming a woman. And Adam wakes up, and standing before him is the most beautiful thing he'd ever laid his eyes on. I mean, to that time, he'd been looking at animals and been looking at the birds and the beasts and all those things. And all of a sudden, there is someone that God made just for him. Made just for him. It says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there, here's where God institutes marriage. This is where he institutes it, right here. If you never realize it, it's in this verse. Therefore shall a man leave his father or mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I like to call it cleaving, leaving, and weaving is basically what you have here. Cleaving, leaving, and weaving. And so the first thing you'll see here is it says, therefore shall a man leave his father or mother. And, and, and right there, that's interesting in and of itself because I just told you a few minutes ago that actually the man did not what? Let's see if you were listening tonight. What did the, what, what did not, what the man, did he leave his mother and father? No, what did he do? What's that? Exactly, he added on. Thank you, Tim. Remember I told you that the man, after they signed the contract, after he put the money down on her, after he paid the dollar fifty or whatever it was he was going to pay for her, he then went back to his home because at that time he was almost all the time men were apprentices of their fathers. Just like remember Jesus was what? Joseph, was, that's why he was a carpenter. He was an apprentice to his father. And in, in Jewish custom, gee, you would have gone home and you would have gone back to your father's house and you would have built on and you would have gone back and worked with your father and you and your wife would have lived attached to their home. That's why often, that's why often in the culture of the Far East, you find what? You find these homes that are full of many, many families. Because that's their culture. That's the culture that we find here. So it wasn't, in a sense, a physical leaving. It was more of, in a sense, the man now, he leaves. If you'll picture this with me. He leaves from being under the protection of his parents. And he now moves up to be the provider and protector, what I call the umbrella of protection, for his wife. And his wife does not move up. She simply moves from being under her father to now being under who? Her husband. And so he makes a move upward to become the spiritual leader, the spiritual provider, the spiritual protector. She makes a move from being under her father to now being under her husband. And so that's the sense of leaving. He leaves the position of being under his parents to now being over his wife. 
So he leaves their protection to be her protection. That's what this is really saying here. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. This cleaving here is where we get the word that means they're becoming one. Not physically, but they're becoming one emotionally. That's the problem with our society today is we think we have to become one what? Physically first. God said, no, listen, you become one spiritually and emotionally first and you leave the physical until after um, you say, I do. And that's that picture of here, this cleaving together, coming together in marriage, emotionally and spiritually. Uh, and then what happens? And then the two become one flesh. That's the consummation of the married where they become one flesh. The marriage act is, is carried out. So here is God instituting marriage, the, the leaving, cleaving, and weaving together. It says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And you know what? If the Bible ended there, wouldn't it be great? Because that was the perfect marriage, perfect union until what happened. Genesis chapter 3 and senators into the world and that's where we enter with problems. But I wanted you to see that tonight because marriage is important to God. After God created the heavens and the earth, the very first institution that he created was marriage. Is marriage important to God? You better believe it's important to God. And listen, it's a sad day in our society when marriage isn't one man and one woman in the direction that we're going in America. It's a sad day in our society when it's becoming two women or two men. That's not what God decided. It wasn't um, Adam and Steve. It's always been what? Adam and Eve. And so, listen, if there's something we need to pray for, we need to pray for our We need to pray for the United States of America because we are heading the wrong direction quickly. We're heading like Sodom and Gomorrah headed. We are. And that's scary to me. And so we see this, and I wanted you to see that because marriage was important. Again, the Old Testament, that foundation, God instituted it. And so here, I think it's, it's neat that since that was the first thing he instituted, the first institution, it is the first place that he does his miracle. So back to John chapter 2 again, and we have this to pick it up there. Jesus is a social being. Jesus is interested in the institute of marriage. And then as we go on in this wedding, they run short on wine. Now, we, we're not going to get into a debate tonight. Was this real wine? Was it fermented? I can tell you this much. In that part, you grew grapes from June to September. That's when, the, that's when you grew grapes there in, in this area, from June to September. This wedding took place somewhere in October to um, April, probably. There was no refrigeration back then, so um, we won't go there, but, you know, um, certainly the Bible has a lot to say about that, and we're not going to debate that one tonight, but th that's when this wine was made, sometime before this wedding, and had been stored somehow. But anyway, um, it says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So they run short on wine, and Jesus' mother, I get because I know she's serving here, she comes and says to Jesus, Jesus, man, they've run short. Can you do something? Can you help us out here? And she already knew who he was. She, she had been living with him for 30 years, remember? He's 30 years old at this point, so she had spent the last 30 years with him. She knew that he was the Son of God. And, and when he, she says, um, woman, 
and it really could be translated lady. It's not a derogatory type thing like woman. or And he didn't say mother here. because I, And the reason he didn't say mother, and I think it's because at this point as he begins his earthly, earthly ministry, he's trying to, in a sense, separate from him being her child because he knows what he's going to go through. He knows how he's going to be hated. He knows the crucifixion. And, and so he's trying to make this break so it's not going to be so hard for her, though it had to be tremendously hard to watch her son go what he went through. There, there's that break of him trying to make from his mother at this point. Um, he, and he's saying, it's not my hour yet to come. And, and we find that same, same thing in uh, chapter 7, verse 6 and 8. Um, in verse 30, chapter 8, 20, chapter 12, 12, verse 23, chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 17, verse 1. And each time when he says this, he's really talking about the purpose of him coming. The purpose of Jesus coming here to earth wasn't just to perform miracles. It, 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 even though he's going to do this, that's not the purpose he came for. Why did Jesus come? To die. Bible says that he came for the purpose of seek and saving those who are lost, and for him to do that, he had to die. That was his purpose. He, though he's going to provide what is needed here, it wasn't his purpose. He's saying, I'm going to do this, but I want you to realize this isn't the purpose I came. He didn't come just to give my, man to heal eyes. He came to, in a sense, give sight to spiritual darkness, didn't he? Not physical darkness. And that's what he's really saying here. My, my hour to reveal why I'm really here isn't yet come. But his mother says unto the servants, whosoever he, whatever he says, you need to do it. So he must have, there must have been another conversation that went on there, and she knew that he could take care of this. And um, the third thing I want you to see, number one, Jesus is a social being. Number two, Jesus is interested in the institution of marriage. And number three, Jesus is interested in the common things of life. He's interested in the common things of life. Here's a, a wedding, a celebration, and he knows there's a need, and he takes the time to provide their need. And when I look at that, it reminds me, another illustration of that, remember after Jesus' resurrection, when the, the guys, the disciples, they had pretty much said to themselves, well, you know, looks like Jesus is gone, I guess we might as well go back to fishing. And they're out fishing, remember that? And uh, they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything, and he gets on the shore there and he yells out, hey, throw the nets on the other side. And we've all, it's like, we've already tried that. And he said, go ahead. And... Uh, Remember he does that and they catch all those fish and they're bringing them to shore. What does Jesus do for his disciples? He fixes them breakfast. Here we have the Son of God just has risen from the dead and he's doing what? He's fixing his disciples breakfast on the beach. You know what that tells me? Listen, it tells me that Jesus is interested in the commonplace things of life. Disciples had worked all night, hadn't they? And, and the first thing when they got out in those boats, what were they going to want to do? They were going to want to have a hearty breakfast. And Jesus probably fixed one of the best fish fries you'd ever had for breakfast there on the beach that morning for the disciples when they got up onto the shore. Why? Because Jesus is interested in everything you and I go through. He's, he's interested in us individually. He's interested in us you know, what we're eating, what we're doing, all those things that seem to be so common. We get up and we go to work. Jesus is interested in your work. 
Jesus is interested in you physically. He's interested in you spiritually. He's interested in everything about you. We find that in, in Psalms 119, where, or Psalms 139, verses 1 through 6. So Jesus is interested in the commonplace things of life. And then you go on here. It says, and there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Again, a Jewish custom when you came in to a wedding feast like this or anything, there were pot, pots set up and uh, you would have washed your hands and even your feet in, in those pots. And uh, that's what these purifying pots were used for. Probably each pot uh, was about 17 to 25 gallons uh, would hold about 17 to 25 gallons. So this represents about 100 to 150 gallons of water. And um, so the people who are taking care of this, they go and they fill this. In verse 7, Jesus says unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto him, draw to, to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. So they put water in the pots, about 100 to 150 gallons worth, and they begin to draw it out. Then when they drew it out, it turned into what? Wine. It turned into wine. This is my fourth point about lessons from a wedding. Jesus came to transform. Jesus came to transform. Here he is transforming what? Water into wine. But I want to tell you it's more than that. He came to transform you and me. He's in the business of transformation, isn't he? And that's the neat thing. He's not done on any of us. He's still working on us. But another lesson that I learned here is Jesus' whole ministry was about transformation. He's not, even, he's not only transforming those who are sick, but more so he is transforming those who are sick because of sin. And his whole ministry is about transformation. Here, it was simply the transformation of water into wine. And the big scheme of things, it's about transformation of souls. It says, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, What? Um, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is the most reasonable thing you can do. Be not conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus came to transform even our mind. We read on down through here. It's interesting. Who did Jesus use to, take, to do this miracle? He used these servants, didn't he? He had these servants go and get water, had them place that water in the pots, and then he had those servants dip it out. And he had him carry it to the governor and the one who was heading up this. And so the next lesson that I learned from this lessons from at a wedding is Jesus uses others to accomplish his tasks. Did you ever think about, he just could have spoke. He could have had everybody go get their own glass and just spoke and said, water become wine. That's all he had to do. I mean, after all, he did what? He and the matter of speaking created the whole heaven and the earth. But I want you to know here that Jesus uses other people to accomplish his task. And that's an important fact, a basis as we get into the New Testament, because in the church, every one of us have different gifts. 
Every one of us have different abilities, and Jesus wants us to what? All fit together as the body of Christ. He says some of us are eyes, some of us are mouths, some of us are feet, some of us are hands, some of us are ears, but we are all just as important. Nobody in this room is more important or less important than anybody else. Did you hear that? None of us are more important than anybody else. We're all equally important in the body of Christ, but he wants to use us all to accomplish his task. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's doing here. He's using people to accomplish his task. And then the last point, before we spend some time in prayer as we close, it says, with the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse uh, gives him the worst wine, but thou hast kept the good wine unto now. Now, we could translate that, and you could run, if you wanted to, with verse 10 and say, well, they served uh, you know, the good wine, and when they got drunk, then what would happen is they'd serve the, the, the horrible wine, and it wouldn't make any difference because they were drunk. Well, I think you could translate it that way, or you could translate it this way, too, where you serve the, the, the best wine first, and, and in a sense, what he's saying is you serve that, that wine that is the best you know, you first, and that what? That begins as you, the more you drink that, the more your taste buds get used to that, and then your taste buds almost become nil is what happens. You don't have any more taste buds. So no matter what you drink after that, it's not going to make any difference. Uh, so we can, we can translate that any way we want. But here's, what, here's my point here is this. With Jesus, everything gets better as we go along. My last point this evening is simply this. Everything with Jesus gets better as we go along. You say, what do you mean? This isn't the best it's going to be. The moment that we slip out into eternity, it's really going to get good. It's really going to get good, isn't it? And with Jesus, everything gets better as we go along. You know, you say, well, is that really true in life? Well, you know what? Yeah, we do go through difficulties and we go through problems and we go through difficulties. But remember, it's going to get what? It is going to get better. And with Jesus, everything gets better as you move along. And so here, someday, you know, we're moving through this sinful world, but someday we're going to move right out of this sinful world if it's, through the, if it's the rapture or if it's what? Or if it's we die and go to heaven, it's going to get better. And that's the truth here. You know, they said you saved the best for last. Well, with Jesus, I want to tell you this. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And, and I really believe that, listen, Jesus came to give you life. And in John, it says he came to give you what kind of life? More abundant. Thank you, Jack. God does not want us to live on this earth just sort of making it, does he? God wants you to have an abundant life. And I, and I say this, and I've said it on Wednesday night, you should be becoming more like Jesus every day, and you should be becoming and transforming more to be like Jesus, so when it comes time for you to die, there's not a whole lot of difference between this moment and your next breath in heaven. That's the truth, that you're moving to become so much like Jesus that the very next moment when you move into heaven, there's not a lot of change other than the physical change and that you become without sin because what? You've become so much like Jesus. And when you're living an abundant life, let me tell you, life is getting what? Better and better and better and better. 
Simple lessons this evening. Jesus is a social being. Jesus is interested in the institution of marriage. Jesus is interested in the commonplace things of life. Jesus came to transform lives. Jesus uses others to accomplish his task. And with Jesus, everything gets better as we go along. So just some simple lessons from a wedding this evening.